So we're in the book of Esther, and we have been talking about um, a number of things in this book, and we've been, been looking at things. But one of the things I thought about is this. I thought about, you know, in every nation, in every country, in every town, every city, any place where people gather, there are momentous events. There are events that are seminal, and they shape an area. And I was thinking about, you know, the peninsula, specifically uh, Newport News, that's where our church is, but the peninsula, what, what were those, you know, just a little walk down history lane, what were those seminal events in the history of Newport News and the peninsula? Well, we know, you know, when Jamestown was founded, immediately they started spreading out, but we also know in 1621, 50 settlers from Ireland came specifically to come to this area and start to, to farm, they established farms. And for quite a long time, well over 100 years or so, uh, uh, it was just a farming community. It was sparsely settled. And then there was another seminal event in 1886, uh, 1870. 1870, uh, it was designated that a railroad would come out the peninsula to a, the, the, this area that's a deep water port. And at that time, once that railroad was built, it was the only year-round, ice-free, deep-water port on the East Coast. So it became a very important deep-water port, and it became very important for coal and those types of things. And then what happened, because the railroad was built, finally completed around 1882, in 1886, the Chesapeake Dry Dock and Construction Company was founded, which we know now as Newport News Shipbuilding. That was a seminal event. And then uh, we went quite a while, and the next seminal event in the city of Newport News was 1952. That's when Newport News was incorporated as an independent city. And then not long after that, in 1957, to me, probably the most important, uh, and for, I know for people who have maybe been here a long time, the most important seminal event in the history of Newport News was 1957 when Paul Branch opened Whataburger at the corner of Mercury and Jefferson. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to tell you something. It, small groups, if, if your small group has not been, you need to do that as a small group activity. Just go to Whataburger and enjoy the glory of God in, in, in those burgers, all right? And there was other smaller events, you know, 1965, the first Dairy Queen was founded in Newport News. That's a big event for me. Um, those, are <laughs> those are defining moments, all right? And I'm supposed to now segue and get very spiritual. We all experience defining moments in our lives. You know what? Let me just take that off there. <laughs> we all experience defining moments in our lives. Sometimes they seem huge. Sometimes they're not so huge. Sometimes in our lives, a very insignificant, seemingly insignificant thing can become a defining moment, in our lives. You know, I've, I've, I've mentioned I wasn't raised in a Christian family, and, and, and it was three boys, and we just, just wasn't, God wasn't something that was involved in our lives, our family's life. And one day, the middle brother, I'm the youngest, the middle brother came home from college in his sophomore year, and he just started talking and blabbing about Jesus. And we were all, we, we had this little family meeting, my mom and my dad, the oldest son, and I'm the youngest son, we didn't invite the middle one, and we had this little family meeting, and we said, what are we going to do about Stephen? What are we going to do? He's gone off the deep end. It's crazy. So what they decided to do is they sent my older brother to the university that Stephen was attending to stay with him for a couple of weeks 
and uh, just kind of, you know, deconstruct this whole thing and, and, and bring him back to reality. Well, it just didn't work. So it seemed at the moment something that would pass with time. But it was a defining moment in the, in the life of my family. Six months later, my mom became a Christian. A year and a half later, my older brother became a Christian. And then years later, I became a Christian and last, my dad. It changed the course of our lives in a radical way. It was something that seemed insignificant at the time. We are all, we all have moments and there will be some this week. And they may seem insignificant at the time. But, you know, it's part of when we say everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, anything's possible when God is involved. When God is involved, insignificant things take significance way beyond what you would think they, they deserve. Because God oftentimes is doing something that we can't see and we don't know, but he's working Why? Because we sang about this. He's a good father. He's a good God. He's always working. And so decisions can be defining. And we all will bump into moments like this, like how will I I respond to things that may compromise my faith? Will I speak up for one in my circle of influence who has been marginalized? When asked to be dishonest at work, Will I be dishonest to save my job? How will I respond when tempted to take credit for another's work? Am I willing to take a risk socially to tell someone the good news of Jesus Christ? See, these are decisions, and they can be defining moments. Because if my middle brother had said, you know what, this is going to cause such an uproar, I'm not going to talk to my family about Jesus. The loss would have been great. My loss would have been great. And so today's text deals, now today's text deals with a world-shaping, defining moment. It impacts our world today. Even still, it impacts our world. It challenges us then to look at moments in our lives that can be defining. And remember, this is the theme Uh, that we see throughout the book of Esther. God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. And this, in a sense, is the theme of the Bible. This happens all the time. So, first point I want you to see. They're on your sheets there. If you you are following on the sheet, we see a deep sadness. And let's look at this. This is is, uh, looking at verses um, 1 through 3. And I'm, I'm going to read that. It's on your paper. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. And then right there you see on verse 3 on the screens, in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth 
and ashes. Now, this is something that's kind of foreign to us. We don't really ever see anybody in sackcloth and ashes. It's not something that we normally see. Sackcloth would be something like this. I think it's up there on the screen. It's this, it's this uh, uh, a burlap, basically. It can be made out of different types of fibers, but it's very rough. The point of it is, is that it's, it's a very rough fiber. And then, and then they would take ashes and they would rub it on themselves to show. And basically, this was an outward, a public display of repentance and sorrow. We see this throughout the Word of God, and, and this isn't something that's just done by God's people. This, this is something that was done all the time in the whole world. I mean, it was just, just something that's pretty universal. The prophets would do this in the Old Testament oftentimes to call attention to sin, and part of it was because it's a public display to call attention to sin and to call attention to the need of repentance, it also is a reminder to people that God is working. And then when God does something, they remember, they see, I saw that public display, and now I'm seeing in a later time God's response to that. And so in a way, it was a, it was a way of calling attention to what God is doing. All right, so we have this, this mourning, this, this, this deep sadness that's happening in the life of Mordecai and the Jews um, through, throughout, throughout the kingdom, throughout the empire, which are basically all the Jews in the whole world are under Xerxes there. Now, why? Why? Well, that's chapter 3. We talked about that, but let me just review it real quick. We see the rise in chapter 3. We see the rise of Haman, a man who's promoted to prime minister. He has been sharp enough and manipulated enough and climbed well enough that he's risen to the top just below the king, and the king has given him almost carte blanche power, okay? And, and, uh, People were to kneel or to bow to pay him honor for his high position. And we see Mordecai who would not do that. And we find out why. Mordecai tells people when they ask him, why won't you bow? Why won't you? He says, because I'm a Jew. Because I'm a Jew. Now, we also learn that Haman basically is from the line of the Amalekites. And there is, you could call it a blood feud. They are blood enemies. They've been that way for hundreds of years, uh, starting from when the Jews began their wilderness wandering, and they'd come through the Red Sea. And the Amalekites, who, who were slavers, they basically attacked and captured uh, people for slavery, attacked caravans for people for slavery. They attacked the Israelites. And, and we're told in Deuteronomy what they did is they attacked at the rear where the stragglers were, the older people and the children and they attacked the rear. And in that, and the ensuing battle, started this enmity and that had in some ways already been going on, but solidified this enmity uh, between these people. And Mordecai is just saying, I will not bow to an Amalekite. And Haman is enraged at this. Enraged. Remember, we talked about that word. That word is the idea of... Uh, one time I did this to my brother. He was pouring milk for each one of us at the dinner table. My parents said, hey, you know, Dan, pour milk for your brothers. And I'm a little punk, you know. And so, um, in case you hadn't figured that out. And so, he starts to go, and I'm like, huh, 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 huh. And so, when I go, huh, he just starts pouring it on my arm. And I'm like, oh, and I pull it, and he just keeps pouring and pouring. I'm like, stop, 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 stop. And it just goes, fills the glass with milk, and then all over Haman is enraged. He's filled, and then it overflows, and it spills out so that it just goes everywhere. His rage is that way. This is how upset he is. 
And he decides he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all the Jews. And now we see there's something deeper involved here. There is a hatred for the Jews as the people of God. It manifests itself in history in many different ways. Some within the last 150 years. In in, in various ways. It is a hatred for God's people that wants their extinction and so in chapter 3, Haman casts the purr. That is, he, he plays this game of dice that has uh, um, kind of an occult tendency to it. He asks the spirits, what is the best day to kill all the Jews? And, and the dice come up with a day. And, and to this day, the Jews, uh, he casts the purr. That, they, that's what they call that dice. Uh, the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim. Because that's the day as a celebration of of God's uh, salvation of them through using Esther. And I just gave the whole book away to you if you haven't read the book. Okay. So Haman manipulates Xerxes into agreeing with him that these people, he doesn't know who they are. He just said there's these people. They're terrible people. And he tells them some lies. And and Xerxes is like, well, we need to get rid of them. They're bad on our kingdom. They're costing us money. They're, They're not obeying the laws you, you do what you need to do. And so Xerxes agrees, and again, we see the character of Xerxes. He's a king who's easily manipulated. You know, it starts with the fact that he inherited the kingdom from his daddy, right, which is, can be a disaster. And, uh, and, and he makes blunders all along the way. Um, so anyways, They've, a decree is, is made that there will be this certain day, it's almost a year away from the time that was written, um, that all the Jews may be killed and all their goods may be taken. So it's, you can kill every Jew you see, and just to give you an incentive, you can take everything they own. And that was done to ensure that, that it was total. Um, and so the Jews and Mordecai, they're fasting, so that involves... You know, fasting as we know it involves praying, they're, they're mourning, they're sitting in sackcloth and ashes, so we have that deep sadness. And the next thing is we have a deep uncertainty. Here we have, this is a picture, it's, it's, in, it's in Iraq at this time in a great museum, you can go and see it, and this is King Darius, the father of Xerxes, and that's Xerxes right behind him. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about this golden scepter, and you can see uh, King Darius is holding that scepter. And so this is a, you know, uh, an actual, like this was carved at the time Darius and Xerxes were alive, and, and this is what it looked like. They loved their beards, you know, they loved that stuff, and, and, and he has that golden scepter. So we'll, we'll be looking at that as we get there. So we have a deep sadness, then we have a deep uncertainty. That starts in verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out why Mordecai, uh, ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai. All right, so I I want you to see here just at the beginning of this, um, Esther sends these clothes, Mordecai refuses, and she doesn't know why. Now, that's a key thought for us. She has no clue What's going on? We see here one of the problems when people have great power and great authority. They tend to lose sight of what it is to be a person who is below them. 
They tend to lose sight of that. They tend to lose sight of what a regular person goes through. Right? She is in this high position, and she's, she's kind of cloistered. I mean, she, just, she has no clue that an edict has just been publicized through the whole land, through all the lands of the Persians, that every Jew, in about a year, every Jew can be killed. And she has no clue. And this is something for us to think about. If you're in a position where you're over people, don't lose sight of what it is to be them. You know, that's one of the things, um, sometimes when we, we'll go on vacation, and I'll go to a different church. Not so long ago, I, w- I went to my son's Cody's church. And it was a very interesting experience because I was sitting in a place I don't usually sit. And so I was hearing things differently from how I would hear them. I was sensing what was going on around me. I, I, we, were, we were sitting about midway, and there was some guy talking to another guy behind us. And I know the voice doesn't carry to the front, but I knew for me it was incredibly distracting, this whispered conversation. It was incredibly distracting because it was taking me away from what was being said. And then they would say something I thought was kind of interesting. So I was like, oh, maybe I want to listen to this one. This sounds good. You know? and, and so it, it was incredibly, and I, had never, I don't experience that. Sometimes some of you will come up and say, I'm sorry I coughed so many times. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you did that. Because it's just not something I catch from here. I see when you look at your phones, I see that all the time, right? <laughs> Not that I'm angry, but every Sunday morning I pray a curse on phones before the service. God, foil the plan of the evil AT&T Verizon network. Okay, so, not, not that I'm upset. Doctors can lose sight of what it's like to be a patient and I, I'm not, I really don't mean this as a knock on doctors, but have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt being in the waiting room, being in, in an examination room, being like, you don't understand. You don't understand. Uh, one time I had a doctor do something, and I was like, oh. He goes, oh, does that hurt? I'm like, no, this is laughter. <laughs> this is me laughing. You know, no, come on, man. Teachers can lose sight of what it's like to be a student. Politicians lose sight of what it is just to be a normal voter. The filled lose sight of what it's like to be hungry. And the rich lose sight of what it's like to be poor. And as the children of God, we should be the people who are doing the best of keeping these things in sight. We should be the ones who understand, who try to understand what it's like to be the other to be the other, to walk in their shoes a little bit and understand the fears that they may be feeling, understand the, the struggles, the hate they may be feeling. So Esther, not necessarily through any fault of her own, has no clue what's going on. And I want to just take a moment and remind us of how Esther got to be where she was, Right? Queen, the king threw, pitched a fit about his queen, so he exiled her, and he needed a new queen. And so they had what, if you read most things, or if anybody teaches you this in Sunday school or in children's church, a beauty pageant. Okay, and it was not a beauty pageant. That's a part of it. And I don't want to be too grab, but it's a sex pageant. It's who's the best at pleasing the king in bed, and by that 
and that alone, you are decided to be queen. And you have no choice in this matter. Esther was taken. She did not want this. This was not her choice. Right? I don't care how hard... I don't care how hard she worked to please the king. This is rape. And, and I feel like sometimes as a church, we need to kind of establish where we are on certain things. Because these are things that are, are big in our society, and, it, and it's things that people are talking about and wrestling with. But if one party cannot say no without fear of rep- retribution of any type, then it is rape. I don't care if they say yes. If it's their boss, they're under a pressure that is hard to withstand. I don't care. You know, I, we have to understand that. And we see this. We see this with Xerxes. He thinks these women love him, I'm sure. But they are not there of their own choice. They cannot say no without retribution. And we see it throughout history. Oftentimes, that we revere, people that we revere, we see it in the word of God. David raped Bathsheba. There's just no doubt about it. She did not have a choice in the matter. And even in our country's history, Thomas Jefferson had numerous children in a relationship with a slave. She did not have the ability to say no, even though he alludes to it as consensual. I don't care. And even in our day with Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein, we see it. And, and, and part of Jeffrey Epstein's, I paid them for this. I don't care. They had no ability to say no without retribution. And so we have to understand that. And we have to understand because that's where she is. This is where Esther is. She is caught in this situation. And I'm sure at certain times she is wondering, God, how did you get me to this? How did you get me to this? And we don't ever want to lose sight of that fact. If we are going to be the followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be people who are in the forefront against trafficking. We have to be people who are in the forefront of emphasizing these issues that are so important. Because we can be this way. We have great ease and comfort compared to most of the world. And whatever pushback we receive in our culture is minuscule compared to what others are going through. Now, it's an exciting time, I feel, to be alive. God is working in so many ways. Um, The church is continuing to grow. And we don't hear this necessarily. The church is continuing to grow at a tremendous rate around the world. China The church in Iran is exploding right now. Isn't that amazing? And you don't hear a thing about it. I I was reading the other day a guy, and he estimates now the church in Iran may be 8 to 10 million people, an incredible amount of people who have come to Jesus Christ in the last 50 years. In India, there is a movement that missionaries are so excited about of seeing God working in the lives of Hindus. In the Muslim world, people are coming to Christ at an unprecedented rate. This is an incredible time for us to be alive. God is working. The problem is we're like Esther. We're in our little privileged area. We, 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 we have things, relatively speaking, very good. 
And we have no clue. Because also, it is a time of great persecution. And that's why we need to be world Christians, people who are praying and working and fasting for the persecuted church because, you know, I mentioned we have brothers and sisters right now who are worshiping just like us, and we have brothers and sisters today who will lose their lives because they name the name of Jesus. And for no other reason than they name the name of Jesus, they will lose their life today, today, for doing something like this. And we don't want to be Esther. We don't want to be, whether it's our, you know, I didn't choose to be born in the United States of America, but I don't want to stay in that ignorance. And so Mordecai is going to wake Esther up. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation. You know, that edict went out, the text of that edict went out to every place in the kingdom, except the queen. So he sent him a copy of that edict, which he had published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Mordecai is a person who steps in and he says, Esther, you need to do this. This is what needs to be done. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, I hope you have a person or multiple people in your life who are not afraid to say, you know what, there's something wrong here. You know what, I think you're wrong here. Someone who's willing to confront you if there's something important that needs to be confronted about. So she said, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter, we saw that, the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Now the inner chambers is where the king does, he, he lives, he eats, he does all his business, it's where he spends most of his time. And so Esther's in, she's informing him. She's saying to Mordecai, you don't understand. This, this idea of yours is impractical. It's unrealistic. It's unsafe. This huge complex. They don't see each other. They don't eat together. They don't sleep together unless he calls specifically for her. She does not have the ability to just have a normal conversation with the king and try to steer the conversation to a particular area. You know how that goes. You say, oh, how was your day today? Maybe it's husband and wife, maybe it's roommate, maybe it's friends, whatever. How was your day today, you know? And Xerxes would say, oh, you know how it goes. Decrees need to be decreed. Traitors beheaded, feasts eaten. The normal stuff. How was your day, Esther? Oh, you know, decisions to be made, orders given to eunuchs. Oh, and it slipped my mind. Me and my people are going to be exterminated. See, she doesn't have a chance to steer a conversation in any way like that because she has no personal interaction with him. 
And she says, I can't see him without him asking to see me. And when he asked to see me, we know what it's all about. And he hasn't asked to see me in over a month. So she's thinking, am I on the outs? Because if I go to him and he doesn't extend that scepter, I will be killed immediately in that room. It's not like some execution is planned. They just kill her. And oh, by the way, Mordecai, this jerk has anger management issues. And I would have to admit that I was a Jew, something I neglected to tell him. And also, the decree is irreversible. Even the king can't reverse a decree. I can't do it. It won't work. And she's thinking also, Mordecai, have you heard of Vashti? She said no to him. She disagreed with him, and no one's seen her since. So it's impractical. It's unrealistic. It's unsafe. It won't work. So she's wavering. She's wavering between two worlds. She's wavering between the world of Esther the queen, and then she's wavering between the world of one of the people of God. Her names exemplify this. She's Esther. That's her Persian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Two worlds, two allegiances. That is so easy for us to struggle with. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. You know, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, I mean, we're doing what God wants us to do. But let's face it, it is a little easy here. We're all on the same page, basically. We're all singing. We're all in agreement. We all tend to think well of each other as much as possible. But when we leave here, it's a whole different ballgame, right? That's when things change. There's another world. We're between two worlds sometimes. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of God. Two worlds that are often at odds. And like Esther, we have to decide which world will hold my ultimate allegiance. Which world am I going to choose? Because at times we have to choose. So which world's values are going to win out? Whose applause do you live for? So she's wavering. And we have this deep sadness, a deep uncertainty, a strong warning is now, this is from Mordecai. And when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So we have these messages, this messenger that's going back and forth, messaging this, da da da, da and it kind of heightens the tension. The author is, is, is letting us feel that build. And, and uh, he, says, he says, don't think that you will survive because you're the queen. He says, hey, Esther, you know what? Do you remember Vashti? She got put out. So he can easily happen to you. But here we see Mordecai's faith. Mordecai understands there's a covenant between God and the Jewish people. And he says, I'm trusting God in the covenant that he made. There's no plan B here. There's no plan B for God. He's going to use the Jews. And Mordecai is trusting that. This is a beautiful thing. 
This is powerful. He trusted the promises of God, and he's trusting the providence of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, he's saying our God is a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. He promised Abraham to make his children into a nation, many people. He promised David that the Messiah would come through his line, through the line of the Jewish people. And the Messiah has not come yet, so we cannot be exterminated. That's where he's resting. Now, I don't know if he's following that exact, exact thought process, but he's saying, you don't do this, it will still happen. God will still save us. God will find another way. God can do that. He may have that way in, in, in his mind from the very beginning. But he says, but we will not be exterminated. We are God's people. You know, even in the last 100 years from when this was written, that attempt, in a sense, of extermination had already been tried. When Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews into captivity, when kingdoms would conquer other kingdoms, and what had happened is, with Babylon and Babylonia and the Jews, Babylon had been overshadowing them with their powers, so the Jews were paying tribute. They're paying tribute just to stay as a nation. And then one time they decided, you know what, we've made alliances with some powerful nations. We're not paying any more tribute to you. You know, we don't care about you and whatever Jewish bad signs they can make, whatever it is. Um, they thumb their nose at Babylon. Babylon comes in and decimates a huge portion of the, of the country. So the Jewish king says, no, we were kidding. We're going to pay tribute. It was an accounting error. And so they start paying tribute again. A few years later, they make more alliances. They say, no, we're not making... And so this is a problem. The Jews have been a problem. They're an unruly people. They're, they're people that tend to want independence and freedom all the time. So finally, Nebuchadnezzar says, that's it. I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. And he comes in, and he takes everybody from the land and ships them to Babylon. Now, why would they do that? Because it's forced assimilation. If they move you out of your country into a new place, you begin to assimilate to that place. You begin to lose your identity, and you become a Babylonian. I'm not an Israelite anymore because I'm not an Israel. I'm not a Jew anymore because we can't worship like we used to. And that's their plan. It was, in a sense, a forced assimilation, almost an extinction of the Jewish race. And, you know, it didn't work. It's amazing. This is one of the few times in history that we know of. It didn't work. And 70 years later, Cyrus becomes king. And Cyrus says, you can go back. Because they didn't assimilate. And they went back to their land. And they got back in their land. And, and uh, now we have Mordecai here. He's seen that happen. This has all happened in the last hundred years. And so he goes, man, I've seen God work. We're his people. They're not, we are not going to all be killed. Now, the land they went back to is still a part of the kingdom of Xerxes. So that command for kill all includes Israel. But Mordecai trusts his God. He trusts the promises of God. He also trusts the providence of God. What is that? The providence of God is that God is working even when I don't feel like he is working. He trusted that God was at work in this world, maybe quietly, maybe invisibly, and he can't see it yet, but he trusted that God was at work. And we need to understand trusting the promises of God and trusting the providence of God. Because the Jews have been saved numerous times. We've seen that. We've seen that the Messiah did come. 
And now, like Mordecai, we need to trust God to be working in the circumstances of our life. They're not just happenstance. They're not just luck. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a wedding. It was a wonderful time. Uh, there, there was one flaw. Uh, the, the one flaw was that when they posted where everyone was going to sit, they forgot me and my wife, right? And those things happen. It happens a lot to me, I've noticed, but uh, I should think that through. So, um, so what happened was they hurriedly set a couple extra places at a table. And, and this was a wedding uh, that involved, you know, some former CNU students. And so there was a lot of former CNU students from, who are now all over the place that had come back together for this wedding. And so my wife and I are put at this table where we don't know a person which, you know, at a wedding, how that can be so... And, man, they were so welcoming, and they were so... They, we had a great time at the table, and they were all like, so, you know, one of them said, so you're the parson? I was like, golly, that's not a word I've heard lately. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just a pastor. I'm just Bob. That's all I am. I'm just Bob. And they said, but you're doing the wedding. Yeah, I'm doing the wedding, blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, so one of them said, well, where, where's your church? And I said, well, you know, you guys are all over the place. You might not know it. Well, maybe. And I said... I'm Newport, Newport News at, at Port Warwick. Oh, we live in city center. Oh, we're looking for a church. Well, I can recommend one. <laughs> Only one. No, that's not true. And I recommended more than one. I'll be honest about that. And they came last Sunday to our church. Now, that could be a coincidence. The coincidence that even though I'm doing the wedding, they forgot I was going to eat. That could be a coincidence. You know, they forgot about my... That could be a coincidence. That they cleared the table where there was a person looking for a church in Newport News. That could be a coincidence. But you know what? Those things happen, at least for me, too often in my life to just be coincidences. That's the providence of God. That is God saying, hmm. I always imagine these heaven scenes, right? Peter, they're looking for a church. How do I get them connected with Bob? Peter's like, erase, erase, erase. It'll happen now. Their names are off the list, right? <laughs> the providence of God. working. And I want to tell you something. Mordecai believed in the providence of God in the face of death. He believed in the face of death. He believed God was going to save the Jews, and the only thing he could see was that his niece Esther was in a position where she had a chance to get in contact with the king. And so he says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's like he's saying, Esther, I know this has been hell. I know you hate this. I know this is not what you would choose for your life. But maybe God's doing something. Maybe God's going to use you to do something so incredible that when it is done, you will say it was worth it. Maybe that's what God is doing for such a time as this. And so, we need people in our lives who will say, hey, 
I don't think that's right. Or they'll say, hey, this is an opportunity. I think you ought to take it. People who will give you good advice. People who will be willing to stand up to you even when you disagree. People who will pray for you. And Esther had Mordecai. And so we see a deep sadness, a deep uncertainty, a strong warning, and a defining commitment. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will do as you do, will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The fasting and praying now is integral to the whole thing. Esther realizes this is what I need if I'm going to do this. And she says, I will go, even if it's against the law. Isn't that an interesting thought? Here we see civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. It's saying, look, as the people of God, we understand that we're to pray for those in authority above us. And we're supposed to obey. But there comes a place where there's a line. And the interesting thing is, Esther decides to take this route of civil disobedience, and what she says is, and if I reap the consequences that come with it, so be it. See, you can't decide you're going to be involved in civil disobedience and say, no, 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 I don't want to get arrested, because that's a part of the deal. So you have to weigh that all out. But here we see this this interesting thought that runs in different places of the Bible. There are points where the law is wrong and you need to stand up to it. So, here we see a decision to engage in civil disobedience for the sake of the people and the kingdom of God. Humanly speaking, success is not assured. She has not seen him in a month. He has not wanted to see her in a month. Maybe she's on the outs with him. Maybe, you know, she is basically just a figurehead. And so she has these great words of faith. I will go, and if I perish, I perish. She makes a decision to become the mediator for the people of God. She foreshadows Jesus, the greatest mediator. I love this. Notice that the fate of God's plan now rests solely on one woman. You know, we, we like to think if there's going to be this, this, this person who's going to save us, this person who's going to rescue us, it's going to be this, you know, this big person wielding a big sword, a powerful, like a warrior king. But in that culture, a woman is not what they would have been looking for. And God says, that's why it's a woman. A small, formerly insignificant person has been thrust into a position where eternal things hang in the balance. Just one woman willing to do what is right. Now, I don't know what place you find yourself in today. I don't know where you are. I don't know if things are going great right now or they're not going great. But when we trust the the promises and the providence of God... In spite of the disappointment we may be experiencing, God is working. In spite of the fact that someone has let you down terribly, God is still working. In spite of your circumstances that may be going 
in a way that seems terrible, God is still working. Maybe you've endured a tragedy. God is still working. Maybe there's a medical issue. Maybe you have a wandering child. Maybe you have a wandering parent. Maybe you have a wandering spouse. God is still working. God is still working. And we learn in this chapter, we don't know what's going to happen. We're, we're left. This is, the, this is the crux. This is the tipping point of the whole book. But we do know this. There's a man and a woman who have decided to act in faith and trust God. And I pray that we can be that man, that woman in our lives also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it confronts us. It makes us uncomfortable at times. It makes us think about things that we don't normally care to think about. But we need to think about. And so, Father, help us to be people committed to justice. Help us to be people committed to people who are marginalized. Help us to be people who are committed to helping those who are struggling and suffering throughout the world. God, give us the wisdom to take steps that maybe can be a part of that learning and helping. Father, most of all, I pray that we'd be willing to allow you to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering now. If, you, if you're a guest here, please don't feel pressured to give. Um, this is what our regular tenders and our members do.